A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Today we're taking a brief look at the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, third book in the Bible. Lord willing, next week we're scheduled to begin a few weeks of study from the book of Numbers, so I hope you'll join us for that as well. Before we get into Leviticus, though, let me invite you again to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater. We meet each Sunday morning at 1015 in the morning, room 216 of the Family Life Center. If you're not already involved in a small group Bible study on Sunday mornings, this might be a wonderful opportunity for you to get started, guys. I'm telling you, the Lord really blesses us when we get involved in small groups to study His Word, to pray together, to support each other, to encourage each other. We need that in these difficult days we're living in. So if you like, you might want to pause the video right now or take a screenshot of what's on the video. Then you can go to aboundingjoy.com a little later and learn more about what we're doing. A whole lot of people have made a decision that they're going to read the Bible straight through from beginning to end. I may be describing you here. I don't know if this has ever happened to you or not. So they begin, of course, with the book of Genesis. That's where it starts. So they begin with Genesis. And Genesis turns out to be a pretty exciting book for the most part. So they work their way through Genesis and they think this is going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to this study. Then they tackle Exodus. And once again, it seems to be a really fascinating book. A lot of fascinating history there in Exodus, especially in the early chapters. And then they get a little farther along in Exodus, closer to the end of Exodus, and they start bogging down a little bit because of the extended discussion of some of the laws that God gave them and some of the details of the, for the tabernacle, and, and, and those get a little bit more tedious. And, and then finally they get through Exodus, and they say, okay, what's next? Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus. All right, here we go, Leviticus. <laughs> And, and, they, and they get into chapter one and they start thinking, mm, I'm not sure this was such a great idea after all. <laughs> For new Christians especially, Leviticus can be a tough read. Uh, there, there are ways to read through the Bible now. There are lots of plans that let you read a little here and a little there. So you're staying in the Old Testament and the New Testament on the same day. And that's, that's pretty cool. There are lots of good ways to do that. If you're interested in learning a plan for reading through the Bible, I can help you with that. But today, we're going to look at a little bit of Leviticus. Now, please, guys, if, if all this stuff is kind of unfamiliar to you, if you happen to be a newer Christian or a younger Christian, don't give up on me here. Uh, absorb as much as you can. And as time goes on, I believe the Holy Spirit will help you understand things you need to understand. You may not get it all, but he'll help you understand the things you need to understand when you need to understand it. You know, Christian growth is a process. It takes place over many, many years. We sometimes hear biblical truth many, many times before it finally begins to sink in what we're listening to or what we're hearing or what we're reading. So some things may come later. Just be patient. There are many parts of Scripture that are just not easy to understand for any of us. But we know it's all God's Word, and He always uses it to accomplish His purpose. He's doing something with His Word every time we dig into it. And sometimes we just have to trust Him that He will help us understand more difficult parts in His own perfect time, whenever that might be. It might be later down the road, maybe years later. When we get to Leviticus, we find the Israelites still camped at Mount Sinai, the tabernacle's been constructed now. That was at the end of Exodus. And we find God giving them some details about sacrifices that he wants them to offer. That's how the book starts. 
So in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we get an overview of some of the different types of sacrificial offerings that were, be, that were to be offered to the Lord. We get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, we get a closer look at the priesthood. And we read about the ordination of Aaron and, and his sons and the first sacrifices that were offered by Aaron. This is also the section that uh, contains the account. You may remember this. Or you may, if you've not read it before, you might want to check it out. But it talks about the sin of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and it talks about the judgment and their deaths. And then we get to chapters 11 through 15. We have lots of laws about uncleanness, and that includes unclean animals, uncleanness that comes with childbirth, uncleanness because of diseases, cleansing of diseases, bodily discharges, those kinds of things. We get to chapter 16, and we're looking at the Day of Atonement. And actually, this may be the part of Leviticus that more Christians are familiar with just because the Day of Atonement points so clearly to Christ. It's really a beautiful chapter. We're not going to get there today, but it's an awesome chapter. Chapters 17 through 26 are sometimes called the Holiness Code chapters. And it's because there's a long list of different kinds of laws that are given here, usually pretty briefly. It's sometimes called the holiness code just because that word shows up in the Hebrew a lot. Holy, sanctify, to make holy, to sanctify. That doesn't mean now, if you were with us when we studied the different types of laws before, that doesn't mean this section contains only commands to keep Israel separated from other nations. That's a significant part of it, but it's not all of it. There are all kinds of laws given in this section. Laws regarding sacrifices, but not too much of that. Laws regarding the priests. There are laws dealing with sexual immorality and idolatry. There are even some civil laws here, so there's all kinds of laws there. And by the way, I said this when we talked about the kinds of laws before, but the mixture of these different kinds of commands in these chapters has caused some people to try to argue that part of God's moral law has been done away with, just like the holiness code laws were done away with. Because we know the holiness code laws were fulfilled and brought to an end when Jesus came. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And we learned then, if you remember, that we have to read the whole Bible as a whole and understand what God's saying in different parts of it and put it all together to make sure we understand which laws are ceremonial, which laws are civil, which laws are holiness code laws, which laws are part of God's eternal moral law for all of us for all times. Finally, chapter 27 discusses things dedicated to the Lord and vows. And with chapter 27, the book of Leviticus comes to an end. So right now, we're just going to look at the first seven chapters. And the main subject in these first seven chapters is sacrifice, different kinds of sacrifices. Now, this is not the first time we read about sacrifice in the Bible. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what God did? He sacrificed some animals. How do we know that? Because he covered them with skin. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, skins, and clothed them. He had to sacrifice animals to provide them garments of skins. So there's the first animal sacrifice we read about in the Bible. In chapter 4, we find Abel offering an animal sacrifice from his flocks. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. Later on in chapter 8 of Genesis, right after the flood, we find Noah making animal sacrifices as burnt offerings. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and 
offered burnt offerings on the altar. By the way, are you familiar with the fact that, uh, you know, there are flood legends in almost all ancient cultures and societies of the world, all over the world. It's amazing. It's one of the bits of evidence that helps us realize the flood that's recorded in the Bible, the worldwide flood that happened in Noah's day, really is historical. It really did happen. If you think about it, it makes sense that since all the peoples of the earth are descended from Noah, that many of them would have their own flood traditions. And even though their flood stories are dissimilar from each other in many ways, they're similar in other ways. That is that there was a flood. And, and it's, they're not accurate because they're not inspired by God. They were just passed down from generation to generation through the families. But but the very fact that they exist at all, all over the earth, from these, all these different cultures, makes sense only if there was a great worldwide flood at one time, just as the Bible teaches us. So it's, it's a bit of evidence that the flood is really historical. Well, the same kind of thing is true about sacrifices. It's interesting that throughout ancient history, all over the earth, we find many, many people with a history of offering sacrifices. And it would make sense that there would have been this echo of the need for sacrifices passed down from generation to generation to the various descendants of Noah all over the earth. Of course, those sacrifices became very wicked and evil, abominations to God. There were sacrifices to false gods. Many of them went so far as to actually sacrifice their own children to their pagan gods. But all these pagan sacrifices actually just are kind of a perverted echo of God's true sacrifices. There are always two elements in God's covenant with man. God gives commands, his law, and to the extent that men obey those commands, they will be blessed. God makes that very clear, and we know that by experience. And to the extent that men disobey those commands, they will be cursed, and ultimately that curse is death. And that curse of death is passed to all men because all of us have broken God's law. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, along with the commands was an absolute awareness of the necessity, the absolute necessity for God's grace, for God's forgiveness. Because God intended all along for men to realize there's no way we can keep his law perfectly. It's hopeless. <laughs> we know that. We know we're weak. We know we're sinful. We know our flesh is weak. We know the Satan is real. We know the world is tempting us. And men realize we can't really even get close, not unless we just deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves. So God offered his grace by providing a substitute that would be sacrificed in our place. Men have always needed grace. We've always needed forgiveness. We've always needed mercy. Now, in the fullness of time, that grace would be given through the ultimate sacrifice, which would be God sacrificing himself. God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would die as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, our substitute, so that we could receive the grace of God in spite of our sin. The problem has been, very sadly, that over and over and over again, we humans have arrogantly assumed that we really could keep God's laws well enough to make God happy. Maybe not perfectly, but surely God will be happy. And we think God would judge us like we would. You know, We think our standard is God's standard. That's, that's foolish. The Jews tended to forget that the whole purpose of the sacrifices, even while they were doing them, was to remind them that they were failures at keeping God's law. And they desperately needed God's mercy. And they desperately needed God's grace. They tended to forget that over and over again. They tended to see the sacrifices as just another part of their tradition and their law. And if they could convince themselves that they were doing all the parts of God's law pretty well, then they'd be just fine. After all, they were descendants of Abraham, right? And so often they forgot how badly they were sinning against God. 
So they often didn't repent. They didn't come to God overwhelmed with this sense of their need for his forgiveness and his grace. They tended to see themselves as God's people just because they were physical, biological descendants of Abraham. And they thought, surely God will bless them no matter what, just because of who we are. And if they did sin some, it really wasn't that big a deal. And they didn't sin that much, that kind of an attitude. They had that. And they would lose that sense of the seriousness of their sin and the seriousness of their need for grace and forgiveness. Now, listen, guys, before we get too critical of the Jews, we Baptists, I happen to be Baptist. I can talk about Baptists. You can fill in any denomination you want there. But we Baptists are in danger of doing the same kind of thing. We think, well, I'm a Baptist in good standing. I've been baptized. <laughs> I'm a member of the church. Yeah, I may sin a little bit, but it's not really not a big deal, is it? I mean, we Baptists are good to go. Once saved, always saved, right? And we can lose that sense of the seriousness of sin and our continuing desperate dependence on God's grace and God's forgiveness that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very serious. It's very important. And we tend to trivialize it if we're not careful. So it didn't take long for the sacrifices to be profaned. They just saw them as another law. Uh, they lost the meaning. They lost the purpose that God had built into those sacrifices. But all these sacrifices were given to point men to their need for forgiveness and to point to the ultimate sacrifice that God would make, the sacrifice of God the Son. When the Israelites offered these various sacrifices, it was supposed to be a form of worship. They were supposed to be acknowledging to God that they knew He was right about sin, and they recognized His holiness, and they recognized His righteousness, and they recognized His perfection and His hatred of sin, and they recognized that if God didn't forgive their sin, their sin would destroy them. They were praising and worshiping God through the sacrifices to communicate their need for forgiveness and mercy and grace. And again, all of them pointed to the Lamb of God our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came, all those animal sacrifices should have ceased. Their purpose was ended. The prophecy was over. Jesus had come. When the Jews rejected Jesus, for the most part, a few of them, of course, received him as their Lord and Savior. But most of them rejected him. They kept on offering animal sacrifices. So God gave them 40 years, and then he forced the issue. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus he would later become emperor of Rome himself, but he was a general at the time. He totally came, came into Jerusalem and totally destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. And that stopped the animal sacrifices for good. Since then, the Jews have not offered any animal sacrifices. They don't have a place. But just because animal sacrifices were stopped, that didn't mean God intended for all sacrifice to be stopped. And we find this in the New Testament. When Paul was in Rome under house arrest during his first imprisonment there, he had a co-worker named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus brought him an offering from the church at Philippi. They had already been generously supporting Paul's ministry since Paul had first led them to Christ during his missionary journey. It's a beautiful church there. And I want you to listen to how he thanked them for their gifts. Look at this. He said, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Look at how he describes them. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. You hear what Paul's doing there? He's using the same kinds of terminology that in the Old Testament referred to animal sacrifices. 
to remind them that he recognized their monetary support, their financial support, was a sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God. There are sacrifices to be made today. Look at Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here the Spirit's telling us through Paul that even though we don't bring animal sacrifices to God anymore, that's over. We must present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. It's a sacrifice. Why? Because our flesh is weak. We'd rather be lazy. We'd rather be selfish. We'd rather indulge ourselves in just taking it easy. We'd rather just satisfy our selfish desires. And God says, no, you need to sacrifice yourself, offer yourself to me to bring me glory. Now, that can include a lot of different things. Discipline, prayer time, for example, or Bible study, or acts of service, acts of ministry, missions work, gifts to support ministry, offering up songs and words of praise. All of that's part of our sacrificial worship. He tells us this, this is in Hebrews chapter 13. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? A sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Here he's equating the words of praise and worship that come out of our mouths with a kind of sacrifice to God. Words of praise and worship need to be part of our lives, especially when we don't feel like offering up praise and worship. That's one of the things that makes it a sacrifice. We often don't feel like it. You've been there, haven't you? It's time to worship. It's time to praise. But I don't feel like it. And of course, our enemy, the devil, doesn't want it to happen. He doesn't want us offering up sacrifices of praise and worship. He hates it because of what God does through it in our own lives and how it brings God glory. Many years ago, I was going through a time when my feelings and my emotions were definitely not where I wanted them to be. And I was really struggling emotionally, spiritually. And during that time, I was looking to God for some help. And God gave me some words and a little melody for a little chorus that he knew I needed at that time. And he used it in my life several times after that. It went like this. When I don't feel like singing, I will sing anyway. When I don't feel like praying, I will pray, pray, pray. When I don't feel like praising, I will praise him just the same. For Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still in control. Feelings come and go, but this one thing I know, Jesus is still on the throne. God gave me that little chorus almost 40 years ago now. It's hard for me to believe that. I, know, I need to quit saying that. Every time I talk about time intervals, I always say it's hard for me to believe that. <laughs> There's another praise chorus we used to sing that also communicates the truth that our praise is a sacrifice to God. I didn't write this one, but it's really good. If you know it, join with me and sing it. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. And we offer up to you the sacrifices of thanksgiving. And we offer up to you 
the sacrifices of joy. Offering up a sacrifice of praise to the Lord turns out to be a lot more powerful than we realize, guys. It really does glorify God. That's why Satan hates it. And he does everything he can to get you to focus on other people instead of God or focus on yourself instead of God. But it changes our attitude. It changes our perspective when we do it right. It brings joy to our hearts. It drives off our spiritual enemies. It is very, very powerful. So we still offer sacrifices to God today, just not animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices all pointed to Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, those sacrifices came to an end. Okay, let's get back to Leviticus now. There are many interesting details given about how the sacrifices were to be offered here. God was very detailed and very specific. Some of these details remind us of truths that God later reveals to his people in the New Testament. So many of them are pointing us pretty clearly to New Testament truth. Some of them, to be honest, seem kind of obscure to me. Some of the things he says to do, I think, I don't know why he told him to do that. I don't understand that. Someday we will. They're, they can be hard to understand. We can make guesses. There's nothing wrong with that, I don't believe, as long as we recognize we're just kind of speculating. One of these days when the Lord comes back, we're going to get to have another class maybe like this and, and just learn all the significance of all the details. That'll be exciting. I think it would be. Can you imagine it? We'll have glorified bodies. We'll have brains that work really, really well. Satan won't be here there to mess with us. Our old flesh won't be around to tempt us with distractions or boredom or weirdness or all that stuff. You know, it'll just be an overwhelmingly exciting Bible study. I'm looking forward to it. I bet you are too. And we'll learn more about these things then. Meanwhile, we'll just do the best we can with these feeble little brains that we have and our feeble little bodies and see what we can get out of this. So the first seven chapters deal with voluntary offerings that the people were to bring. The first five chapters are mainly instructions for people who brought the offerings. Chapter six and seven are mainly instructions for the priests. In chapter one, he says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Not a wild animal, part of their livestock. The sacrifice was not only to be a clean animal, but it had to be an animal of great value to them, an animal that they would have been worth a lot to them. Verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So this first sacrificial offering God deals with here in Leviticus is called the burnt offering, the burnt offering. In Hebrew, it's olah. In the Greek, it's holocaust. You've heard that word before. Holocaust literally just means entirely burnt. And of course, after what the Nazis did to the Jews in World War II, that word took on an entirely new meaning. But this is the word where that word came from, Holocaust, burnt offering. But the burnt offering was a free will offering of dedication to the Lord. People would voluntarily bring it anytime they chose. They didn't have specific times they had to do it. And they were just doing it to communicate their dedication to the Lord. And the entire animal that was offered to the Lord was totally burned on the altar of sacrifice. It was to be a male, therefore a stronger animal and more valuable to the owner, just as Christ is of infinite value. They brought their most valuable animal. It's also to be without defect. Again, pointing to the sinlessness of Christ. He had no defects at all. He's perfect. It's perfectly sinless. Also remind them that to bring their best when they make an offering to the Lord. Reminds us the same thing. 
there was always a selfish tendency to offer God the leftovers, less than our best. Very typical human tendency, sinful tendency, but human. You remember Malachi, the final prophet in the Old Testament? He starts his book with this real strong rebuke of the Jews for bringing sick animals, blind animals, and lame animals to, for their offering. He said, this is not okay. God will not accept this. You've got to bring your best. <laughs> David Guzik has got a wonderful Bible study commentary online. He tells a story about a farmer whose cow had twin calves. And he told his wife he thought the right thing to do was to give one of them to the Lord. He just wasn't sure which one. So he postponed making the decision about which one belonged to the Lord. A few days later, he came into his wife and he said, I've got some bad news. God's calf died today. <laughs> he kept one living for himself. God says, no, no, no. I want your best. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This was an important part of the sacrifices. When they lay their hands on the sacrificial animal, it was a way of identifying with the animal. It was a way of saying, this animal is taking my place. This animal is carrying my sin. In the same way, we identify with Jesus. We become one with him. He takes our place. He carries our sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul wrote this, inspired by the Spirit, of course. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to this. For if we have become united with him, united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's talking about our identification with Christ. We're united with him just as they lay their hands on that animal. He used the word atonement here. The Hebrew word for atonement is kafar. It means to reconcile by covering sin. By their sacrifices, their sins were covered, but not removed. Not by their sacrifices. That's why they had to keep doing it day after day, year after year. Century after century. In the New Testament, the meaning of the word atonement changes. It carries the idea of to reconcile by removing sin. That's what Jesus did once for all on the cross. That's why his sacrifice was unique and final and total and complete forever. So the atonement offerings of the Old Testament were designed by God to point to the ultimate, final, genuine atonement, which is only in Jesus. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the one making the sacrifice had to do the actual killing. Did you see that? He had to be the one to kill the animal. He had to plunge that knife into that jugular vein or into that carotid artery of that bull. Now the priests were there to help, but the one bringing the bull had to kill it. I want you to think about that. How does that sound to you? Have you ever had to do anything like that? I don't know about you, but the idea of killing an animal with a knife sounds pretty horrifying to me. Sounds gruesome. Sounds messy. Sickening. I think God wants it to seem awful to us. 
the killing of an animal unnecessarily is is awful. It's it's sad. It's it hurts. It's not meant to be pleasant. After sin came into the world in Genesis 3, God changed the entire world. The animal kingdom changed. Some animals became predatory. Some animals started killing and eating other animals. And that's the way God did it when he brought the curse on the earth. And of course, in order to eat meat, men had to kill animals too. The Bible teaches after the flood, meat became an important part in man's diet. But it was a bloody, messy process. Nowadays, we can get kind of insulated from that process. I mean, in the back of our minds, we know somewhere out there there are slaughterhouses, and we know there are meat processing plants, and we know that innocent animals are being killed so that we can eat meat. But we don't like to think about that part too much, do we? That's kind of unpleasant. By the time it gets to Walmart, it's, it's in a nice, clean little package, slices of meat. <laughs> Looks kind of neat. And we don't think much about the process that gets it to that point. But listen, guys, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea sometimes when we're praying over a meal that involves meat to maybe spend just a little bit of time thinking about what this means. An innocent animal had to pay the ultimate price so we could eat. It's part of the price of sin. I think God wants us to be a little bit repulsed by all that killing. In order to eat meat, some innocent animal has to die a pretty brutal death. And I think God's saying, do you have eyes to see what sin has brought into the world? Sin brings with it a, a terrible penalty, a terrible price. Death, death of animals, death of men. And he wants us to be repulsed by the consequences of sin. Yes, we have animals to eat. God wants us to eat animals. He wants us to kill animals to eat animals. It's definitely in the, in the scripture. But he wants us to understand that sin is why this death has to happen. And he wants us to realize as we eat to provide nourishment for us, animals pay the ultimate price. Do you notice the words before the Lord? He's to kill it before the Lord. In other words, he's got to have a complete awareness that God is the one behind this. God is commanding this. God is watching. God is in charge. This is for God. God's the one that my life is to be all about. Now, in a sense, all the sacrifices are designed to cause us to realize the seriousness of sin. That's what all the sacrifice is about. But that doesn't mean that the primary focus of all the sacrifices is on sin. Two of the sacrifices that we're going to briefly look at today are primarily about being forgiven of sin, the sin offering and the guilt offering. But other sacrifices, like this whole burnt offering, later on the grain offering, the fellowship offering, were primarily about worship. So actually, this burnt offering is not primarily focused on sin, other than the sense that all sacrifices are focused on sin. There are other sacrifices that are more focused on sin. But this burnt offering... Yes, it had to do with sin, but it was meant to be a free will offering of total dedication of the Lord. It communicated, all I am, I'm dedicating to the Lord. A full, complete, whole burnt offering. And of course, you can't leave sin out of that. We acknowledge that we've sinned. So the whole purpose of the burnt offering points to the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was total and complete. And it reminds us that we must present our entire being to God as living sacrifices whole burnt offering. Then the priest had to throw that blood against the altar. That points to the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. The altar represents the cross just outside the, the holy place. 
Later in Leviticus, God explains this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. By the way, here he mentions that the sacrifice is to be a bull. Later in this chapter, he makes clear that it could be a sheep. Or for poor people, it could be a bird or a turtle dove or a pigeon. In chapter 14, he makes it clear that allowances for birds is in deference to the poor who couldn't afford a bull or a sheep. By the way, you may remember when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph offered not a, not a bull, not a ram. They couldn't afford those things. They offered birds. They were poor. Verse 6, Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. But his entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Notice verse 8 and 9 says, The head was to be burnt, but the body had to be washed first and then burnt. Maybe reading a little too much into it, but it might point to the fact that Jesus is our head, right? He's the head of the church. He didn't have to be washed. He didn't have any sin. He was totally sinless. But his body, the church, has to be washed. <laughs> We're not clean. Uh, then we're offered to him as a living, a living sacrifice. When Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he probably had this whole burnt offering in mind. Look at this. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, a whole burnt offering. Then there's Romans 12 also probably meant to be a reminder of the whole burnt offering. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Leviticus chapter 2 is about grain offerings. Look at verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So the grain offering was primarily an expression of thanksgiving, thanksgiving to the Lord. It was, it was another expression of worship. It certainly didn't serve as any kind of atonement for their sin. Chapter 2 goes on to describe some of the ways that the grain offering could be made. There were several different options. Verse 4 mentions unleavened loaves mixed with oil or unleavened wafers speared with oil. Verse 5 mentions the possibility of baking it on a griddle. Verse 7 mentions the possibility of cooking it in a pan. Seems like the Lord's saying, you can say thank you to me for the grain I've caused to grow for you by taking some of it and making something special for me. And there's several ways you could prepare it. Leave out the leavening and the honey. Be sure to add some salt. But I'll let you be creative with it. It was a way to say thank you to God. Leaven was usually a type of sin, especially pride. And just a little could leaven the whole batch. So God was saying, leave the pride out, leave the sin out, skip the leaven. Jesus used leaven in this sense in Luke chapter 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
1 Corinthians 5, we read, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven, of, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Also, some scholars tell us that honey was often sacrificed to pagan gods. So God might have been saying here, don't worship me like those other people are worshiping their false gods. Just leave the honey out. Bring what I've blessed your fields to produce. As far as the salt goes, Salt was known to purify things, and salt preserved things, and salt made things taste better. So God said, hey, put some salt in there. In verses 12 and 14 through 16 of chapter 2, God mentioned a different type of grain offering, the first fruits offering. God wanted them to realize that he was the source of their food and their harvest. He wanted them to trust him to provide for them. So he said, when the harvest comes, bring the first fruits to me. That required some faith because the devil... And our flesh might say, ooh, this is the first food we're getting here from the harvest. What if we don't get much more? I mean, we better save this. God's saying, trust me to provide for you. Bring me the first fruits. Acknowledge that I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm your provider. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who takes care of you. Bring me the first fruits. It's all from me anyway. So for them, it was grain. For us, it's usually our money. <laughs> it could include our energy. could include our time. But the first fruits, our best, belongs to him. That's why it's good to start your day with him. <laughs> By the way, verse 3 makes it plain that the priest could eat a large part of the grain. It was an offering to the Lord, but he used it to provide for his priests. Just like money today, we give our money to the Lord, and some of it enables the ministers and missionaries to live, to eat, to have housing and medical care and so forth, so they can devote their time and energy to ministry and missions. That's the way it was from the beginning. Verse 1 said they were to offer the grain with oil and incense, probably pointing to the fact that our offerings are to be given under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, represented by the oil, and with prayer, represented by the incense. We've seen that already in the tabernacle. When Jesus offered up himself, he was fulfilling the picture of a perfect grain offering because he gave everything he had. He gave it without resentment. He gave it without selfishness. He gave it with prayer. He gave himself with the Holy Spirit. He didn't hold anything back. Of course, his death was a substitute for us. The main reason he died was in our place. But his death also set an example for us, like a grain offering. Chapter 3 teaches us about another kind of sacrificial offering, the peace offering. Look at verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, some translations translate that fellowship offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons the priest shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, unlike the burnt offering that we saw in chapter 1, which had to be a male, the peace offering could be male or female, either one, still had to be without blemish. 
But the peace offering actually didn't primarily communicate that this was a way to establish what we might call peace with God or reconciliation between God and men. The way to establish reconciliation between God and men was through the sin offering. He describes a sin offering in chapter 4. We'll get there. But the peace offering or the fellowship offering was a way of celebrating the fact that God was willing to have fellowship with the people he's created. And so it was a way of saying thank you to God. They were enjoying this peaceful, joyous, thankful fellowship with God. Communicating with God, being with God. God was condescending to be with them. It was a free will offering that could be offered any time they wanted to just to celebrate this wonderful relationship they had with God. It also turned out to be the only sacrifice that the worshiper who brought the sacrifice could have part of it to eat. Those details are given in chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. But in essence, what he says is part of it was to be burnt as an offering for God, part of it was to be eaten by the priest, and part of it was to be eaten by the worshiper. So again, it's like having this great big fellowship meal with the priest and with God. God had a part. They had a part. Look at verse 16. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. That you eat neither fat nor blood. They weren't to eat fat or blood. And I think for them, is what I've read anyway, maybe for you this is true too, sometimes I'd have to agree, the tastiest part of the animal is the fat, or at least if it's mixed in with the other meat, the fat provides a lot of flavor, doesn't it? So I think it's likely that that represented to them giving the best and the tastiest to God. And of course, God's already told them the life is in the blood, so that represented the life of Jesus offered to God in our place, and it represents our giving our lives to the Lord. So the blood belongs to the Lord. But there was a very practical effect, too, when you think about it. It's very unhealthy over the long range to keep eating fat and blood. Medically speaking, at least I've read this, blood is so rich in iron that drinking it can lead to an iron overdose. That can lead to liver failure. That can lead to fluid in the lungs. And, of course, we know that many diseases are blood-borne. And you know this, the more fat they ate, the more likely they would be to have cholesterol, circulatory problems, heart problems. So God was protecting them from that. So he says, just give me the fat. It's not going to hurt me. Give me the blood. It belongs to me. You don't eat it. It's not good for you. In chapter 4, we read about the sin offering. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, it seems to indicate God wants them to realize that even when they're basically trying to please Him, they're going to sin. We're going to sin. We don't necessarily plan to sin, but sin happens. It's not necessarily intentional and planned. I think this is meant to be in contrast with what God calls presumptuous sins. You know, sins of very flagrant rebellion. Numbers 15, the person who does anything with a high hand, some translations say presumptuously, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. That's a very deadly, serious sin. Deuteronomy 17 says, The man who acts presumptuously 
by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. He's talking about very flagrant sins with presumptuous sins. But here he's saying, well, not all sin is presumptuous, but you may not, even, you may not realize you've done it until after it's happened even, but it's still sin. It has to be dealt with. It reminds me a little bit of something he teaches us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, probably one of your favorite verses. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but he doesn't put a period there. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all, I think, commit sins sometimes Almost without thinking about it, it's very easy for us to sin. It's very easy for us to tell a little lie or be a little lazy. You know, I, I could go on and on. And sometimes we're so busy, we just push it out of our minds. We forget about a lot of our sins. We're wired that way. Sometimes we repress them without even realizing it. Sometimes we suppress them intentionally. But God says, look, you confess your sin to me that I, that I remind you of. And I will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness, not just the part you remember. I mean, if he wants us to confess something more specifically, the Holy Spirit will remind you very specifically. You know how that works. He'll, he'll bring something very specific to mind. We confess that. And then it's good to say, but Lord, I know I'm forgetting a whole bunch of the stuff I've done wrong. So thank you that you forgive me of all my unrighteousness. Verse 3, if it is the anointed priest who sins, that's bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that's in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So to indicate the seriousness of the sin... To focus on the need to have God himself forgive our sin, the blood had to be taken all the way to the veil, to the altar of incense. Remember that altar of incense stood right before the veil into the most holy place. And that represented confession. And it represented prayers going up to God, prayers of confession. Of course, the blood was still offered at the altar where it made atonement for sin. So it symbolizes our confessing our sins to God in prayer and accepting the atonement for our sins at the cross. There's another type of offering mentioned in chapter 5, down in verses 14 through 19, that was called the guilt offering, the guilt offering. It was for certain types of sins, in particular where, where sin had violated something holy, like maybe they'd damaged the tabernacle or something like that. It wasn't necessarily an intentional sin. They may have simply realized, oops, we've, we've messed up here. We've not followed God's instructions. We've gotten careless here, maybe regarding the holy, or maybe regarding the unclean. But God's teaching them, look, Ignorance is no excuse. You may not have realized what you're doing at the time, but when you do realize it, you need to realize it's wrong. It's sin. You need to make the appropriate guilt offering. Another time when this offering was made was when sin involved a transgression that required restitution, like damaging somebody's property or stealing something, and you had to make substitution, restitution. Verse 14, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, 
He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he's done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. In the last part of chapter 6 and in chapter 7, God gives the priests some very specific instructions about how they were to receive and treat these offerings that he's taught them about in the first five chapters. And we just don't have time to read all of that. But it's fascinating. I would really encourage you to read those things and think about them and meditate on them and talk to God about it. It's all part of his word. It's all exciting stuff, actually. Now, as always, (laughs) there's much more here than we've talked about. We've talked about a lot, haven't we? But, But there's so much more. And it's fascinating what God's put into his word. Uh, And there are a lot of similarities between these offerings. And there's some differences too. And some of these differences and similarities even help us to see some of the nuances in the way they point us to Christ. So just to review, the burnt offering from chapter 1 was a way for the worshiper to show that he was totally dedicated to God. And it points to the way Jesus gave himself totally. He was totally dedicated to carrying out his purpose. Whole burnt offering points to the fact that God's people, including all of us, need to voluntarily communicate the total commitment of ourselves, our lives, to the Lord. Then the grain offering in chapter 2 was to be offered with oil, without leaven, so it points to the Holy Spirit who worked with and through Jesus. It also points to His sinlessness. The peace offering from chapter 3 was a way for the worshiper to have fellowship and communion with God in praise and thanksgiving, just as we can have fellowship and communion with God through Jesus. The sin offering in chapter 4 was a way for them to receive atonement and forgiveness for their sins. And by his offering of himself, Jesus, of course, is our atonement. He's the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. The guilt offering from the last part of chapter 5 focused on the sins that required restitution and payment of damages. It points to the way Jesus' sacrifice pays for the hurt and harm that our sins have done. Also, how we need to watch for times when we need to make restitution for the way we've harmed others. One of the things to keep emphasizing about all these sacrifices is that they were always designed to be temporary. They kept sinning, and they kept needing more sacrifices. The sacrifices went on every day, all the time, every year, all the time. It just kept going. God truly can forgive them and did forgive them. But that forgiveness depended on the ultimate sacrifice that all these sacrifices merely pointed to. You see that? He didn't forgive them because of those sacrifices. He forgave them because of Jesus. Now, before we stop, let's take just a few minutes to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Because I think the writer of Hebrews sums all this up so beautifully in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. 
In other words, if those Old Testament people had been truly cleansed of their sin because of those sacrifices, they would have kept offering sacrifices. The sacrifices couldn't cleanse them. They all pointed to Jesus who could cleanse them. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and and here he begins to quote from the Messianic Psalms, the 40th Psalm and the 50th Psalm, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. He's abolished the shadow. We don't offer those animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have an ironic priesthood anymore. And he establishes the true ultimate will of God, himself as the great high priest, himself as the perfect offering, himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So for that unspeakable gift, we thank and praise and worship the Lord. <laughs> Let's just do that now, Father. We've been in pretty deep water here today, talking about things in the Old Testament that are not very familiar to most of us. They're difficult to understand in many ways. But Lord, we thank you that you've given us little glimpses here of how they pointed us to the ultimate sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, where he not only, he, he didn't just cover our sins, he, he took away our sins. He separated them from us as far as the east is from the west, buried them in the depths of the sea. He's forgiven us of our sins completely. His sacrifice atoned totally and forever, once and for all, for our sins. And Lord, what an awesome thing you've done. It's amazing. And we'd certainly want to give you many, many words of thanksgiving and praise and worship. And, and we want that to come from our hearts as we realize deep within what an incredible thing you have done for us. And thank you for the way you have amazingly took the book of Leviticus that's so difficult for us and pointed to these wonderful things that Jesus is, would, would do for us and has done for us. So all praise and honor and thanksgiving and glory goes to you. And Lord, we just look forward to the day when we have the new bodies and the new minds and Satan won't be able to mess with us anymore. And we'll be able to study these things and understand them like never before. But thank you, Lord. Meanwhile, we have opportunities like this to dig just a little bit deeper into your word. Thank you for being an awesome father. Thank you for the way you love us, the way you forgive us, the way you're so patient with us. Because we're so weak and we're so shallow and we keep messing up. But Lord, thank you that you keep forgiving us all because of Jesus. We just give you praise and thanksgiving and hallelujahs in his name. Amen.